Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Friendly Design Co. is looking for a UX UI designer. They are looking for candidates in Washington, D.C. or Omaha, Nebraska, but are also open to remote applicants. Aptio Inc. is looking for a product designer, too. This is a remote position. And Work & Co. is looking for a lead developer as well as a senior QA analyst. Both positions are located in Brooklyn, New York, with hybrid work schedules. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with artist, musician, and designer Chris Burnett, founder of Colibri Studios in Los Angeles, California. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Chris Burnett. I'm an artist, designer, musician, pretty much all around creative soul. It's hard to peg me down. (laughs) How's the year been going for you so far? This year, and probably for most people, has been a very much transition year, kind of bunkering down on the things that I really want to be focusing on and being more selective with my time and and my energy and my creative focus. So it's been good to kind of narrow down the path of where I'm headed. It also coincides with me turning 30 in two weeks. So it's... Oh, wow. Yeah, it's kind of the beginning of a new new decade, a new chapter. So things have been shifting, but, but in a good way. That's good. What would you say you've kind of learned about yourself since last year? I've learned that I'm an artist at heart, and that's ultimately what I really want to do with my life and my creativity. I've been doing graphic design at this point for maybe eight years professionally. And as much as I enjoy working with clients and you know collaborating on projects, there's this burning desire in me to just be the artist that I want to be, have gallery shows, release albums, have more maybe design collaborations with companies and do things like that. So yeah, things are in the works. Things are in the works. It feels good to kind of head towards the ultimate dream. 
is LA like a, a good city for that kind of creative collaboration? I feel like it is. Well, yeah, I mean, LA, LA has such an interesting creative scene because you get people who, who come here from all over the world to pursue what they want to pursue. So I'm constantly meeting people from all different walks of life, different types of creatives, whether that be musicians, other designers, other artists. So it is pretty good for that. Although a lot of my work does come from people just reaching out to me by email and the collaboration kind of happens more in a digital space, but I'm opening myself up more to relationships that I'm developing in in the city. So I have people that I can actually meet with in person, maybe visit their studios and see what they're doing. So yeah, if you wanted to find it in LA, you could (laughs) for sure. Nice. We just had a fine artist on the show a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. in LA. His name is Gabe Galt. I don't know if that name sounds familiar. Mm. No, I haven't heard of him. He painted the world's largest mural in Toledo, Ohio. I think it's sort of like an ongoing project, but he does a lot of fine artwork. I don't know if you're, if you're like familiar with football, but his dad is Willie Galt. Oh, well. Who played, I, don't I think know he played I, for the, <laughs> the Rams or the Rams. Don't get me to talking about sports. I don't know that much, but I do know <laughs> that. And it's funny because I interviewed him. And like, he kept kind of throwing out like, yeah, you know, my dad, you know, did sports is in the NFL and won a few Super Bowls. I was like, oh, okay. And it did click to me after the interview to be like, wait a minute, who is his dad? Oh, <laughs> it makes sense because they have the same last name. But no, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, I can imagine that like LA is a, is a really great place for that kind of like creative collaboration. And we've been seeing so much mm-hmm. black creativity come out of LA, I think largely, you know, due to like, Issa Rae and Kendrick Lamar mm-hmm. and folks like mm-hmm. that. We, like, we've seen a lot of uh, what well, feels like specifically black LA creativity. Yeah, I'm loving every bit of it. I was just watching uh, Insecure was it yesterday. I think I caught up on the latest episode. But just to see that kind of creativity coming out of the neighborhoods that I grew up in, it's, it feels like finally we're getting the recognition that it is well-deserved. Yeah. So talk to me about Calibri Studios. That's a studio that you began last year. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So I started Calibri Studios in the middle of last year. It was right when everything went into lockdown, actually, which seems like it would be the the least opportune moment to do it. But there's kind of an interesting story to how I went about it. I was in New York. I was visiting a friend of mine, and I'd been working on a, a necklace design. And I found this charm that I really liked to go on the end of the necklace, and it had a hummingbird in it. And it was the first time I was designing a chain and I I was really excited about it. The hummingbird has special significance to me because of the way that the animal kind of moves throughout its life. Mm -hmm. It's not really in your face. It's kind of secretive. But when you do see a hummingbird, it's like kind of this moment for you to be present with it and, and kind of admire it. And that's kind of how I feel about myself. I'm not really in the public eye per se. I don't really, you know, I'm not too show offy. But when I do come around people, I kind of make my presence felt. Honestly, I always see them, which is the weirdest thing. I just, I'll just be walking down the street and I, <laughs> one will fly right in front of me. And I'm like, all right, there's some weird connection here. So, yeah, I was designing this necklace and I get back from New York and the necklace is ready to be picked up. And I get it. And it's I'm so happy with the design that I thought that's the logo. That's the logo for for the studio. And this was before I had even really conceived of starting a studio. But once I had the necklace done, that was kind of the moment where it was like, okay, this is a step in a new direction that you need to take. And it became more clear to me over time that I wanted to create a studio that really just was an umbrella for all of my creative endeavors, whether that be music, fine art, design, 
And I found a, a space, an office space in West Hollywood. I woke up one morning, was on Craigslist, found the space. The first one I, I clicked on was the one that I'm actually in now. And it all kind of came together step by step. So there wasn't really a, a big plan that I was conscious of. It was more these little moments that led to the establishment of the studio. So that's kind of what it is right now, this point. And yeah, you mentioned it kind of being this umbrella. Like I went on mm-hmm. your website and like you're doing art direction, you're doing graphic design, you're doing mm-hmm. collage and mixed media work. Again, you mentioned, you know, music being part of that as well. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to do such a broad range of services as opposed to kind of just graphic design? Well, I've always had this uh, desire to really just be into one thing, but that's just not how my life works. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many creative outlets and I've never felt limited to stick to just one. So anything that I pursue, I want to do it to the best of my ability. And and if I can provide those services for other people, whether that's producing music for people or working on an ad campaign for someone or just creating my own artwork that will eventually show in a gallery, I just wanted it to feel like it was a part of one family. So that's why I wanted to include all these different artistic mediums in it. Talk to me about how you approach like a new project. Like what does your process look mm-hmm. like? Well, it really depends on the the context of the project. So if we can start with a typical design project, I'll get an email from a random person. <laughs> I'm always amazed by how people find me because I'm not on Instagram or social media and I'm kind of hidden, right? So I'll just get an email out of the blue. Someone saying, hey, we think you might be great for this project we're working on. We move forward with a brief, which is them giving me a document of what they're looking for and maybe the end deliverables and the goals that they want to hit. And then I get to work. And the the process of me actually getting to work is it's not really standardized in the sense that I don't have a list of things that I do every time I start a project. It's really based on on feeling and it's more intuitive because it allows me to be a bit more spontaneous with the end product. And if I had the same process every time, I feel like it might be too stale for me and I might come up with the same thing too much. Uh-huh. And so I, I allow for space in between projects for me to just kind of sit and think about new directions or think about things I want to explore and then try to align those new things with what a client might be asking. And typically it works out, you know, for the most part, a client will ask for what I'm already good at. They don't really ask for things that are completely outside of my wheelhouse. Hmm. And that allows me to use the skills that I already have, but then kind of push it in a little bit of a new direction. And sometimes that creates a back and forth where there's there's notes and there's feedback, of course. And then sometimes I hit it right on the head and, and people are happy with what I create first try. So it really depends on the project that I'm being asked to work on. Well, I would also imagine, you know, because like you said, you're not on social media and folks mm-hmm. have to go to your website and kind of look through your work. By the time they've mm-hmm. done that, hopefully like that's a pretty good sort of metric for you to see that this is someone that you would possibly want to work with. Like, have you ever gotten... I'm pretty sure you have, but I don't know. Have you ever gotten a client that has just been completely not like it's just not a fit? Oh, yeah, 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 yes. It's funny because me and my one of my designer buddies, we always have this joke that what we show on our website is typically the type of work that we want to receive, which is why we put it there. But there definitely will be times where someone will hit me up and just be like, hey, I need you to design a just a simple logo. And it's not that I can't design a logo, but that's not really where my skill set lies and my strengths are. 
so I can do it, but then the process becomes a little muddied when it's not something that I'm too passionate about. And they're maybe expecting the, the crazy colorful collage type stuff, but it's a logo, so I can't really do that for a logo. And yeah, there have been moments where it doesn't, it doesn't work, but I'm learning which projects to say yes and no to now that I've been doing this for so long. <laughs> nice. What yeah. are uh, some of the projects that you're working on now? So a lot of the things that I've been doing now is a lot of editorial illustration, which I've found that that really suits my strengths really well. It's mostly image making, which is my favorite thing in the world to do is just create a compelling image to look at. And so when you pair that with an article for, say, the New York Times or The Guardian, that's kind of where I get to really flex my abilities. And that's been over the past year, I've probably gotten the most editorial illustration work than I ever have. There's also a lot of merch design, merchandise design for artists in the music industry. That's always ongoing. There's always artists who need things to sell on the road or sell on their website. And I help with a lot of that stuff. Some of it's like under wraps because people don't want to release info about music projects that they might be doing. But yeah, most stuff in the in the music industry and, and editorial illustration, I'd say, are my my two big, big ones. Is there a specific type of client that you prefer to work with? I'm always open to new types of clients, people that I haven't worked with before, just to be able to stretch myself and see like what industries can I adapt my creativity towards. But I think I do love working in the music industry. It's fun to work with artists that you admire. It's fun to work with artists that are you're playing their music in your car when you're driving around and and you get to work on something that's for their project. And it's fun to be a part of things like that. And editorial, I love editorial. I don't know what it is about it. It's just the pairing of an image with an article is, it's like a dream project. It's like they're little tiny dream projects because they're really quick and the turnaround time is super fast, usually like within a week or a couple of days. And it's it's typically with within those industries like editorial that there's a little more room for creative freedom because they're trying to see how you would interpret the article and how that article maybe is reflected in your style and your own sensibility. So that's why I like it a lot, because there's not too many notes. There's not too much like canceling of ideas. It's it's very open-ended, which which I love. Okay. Yeah. I don't know why for some reason I would imagine working with musicians might be kind of temperamental, but I guess, like you said, if it's an artist that you really like and they come to mm-hmm. you, then it, it probably makes it a bit of an easier match. Well, that's a good point. I mean, there there are definitely artists I've worked with in the past who are who are artists, you know, and artists change their <laughs> mind a lot. And it's there's a certain temperament, like you said, that that goes along with it. But I think the reason that I enjoy it and the reason I think I'm able to do it is because I am also an artist. So I I kind of understand that sensibility mm-hmm. and it allows me to be as flexible as I need to be when working with them. And it also kind of informs my own practice of how I go about my music or my art as well. So it's Fine. It's a double-edged sword for sure, but I, I yeah. do like it. I just want to say to the audience, I don't know if Chris is being like a little humble now, but his music is really good. <laughs> it's really good. I, thank it, you, with, thank you. with your permission, I'd like to link to your SoundCloud because like I was doing research for the interview and I just kind of, you know, mm-hmm. put the music on. I was like, this is, this oh, is good. Yeah. This is good. I was like, this, I could hear this on like, you're mentioning Insecure. Like, I can hear this on Insecure. Like, it's pretty oh, good. Oh, man. I would love for that to happen. But this is their final season. Oh, I'm so sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, thank it's, you. No, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I guess to that end, you know, sort of talking about like black art and, and things mm-hmm. like that, we've started to see over the past few years that like 
with sort of this influx in black television shows and movies and mm-hmm. stuff, we're really starting to see a much wider range of artists, not just musical artists, but like visual artists and stuff kind of portrayed through these works. Like we had, mm-hmm. we had Gabe Galt, who I mentioned before on the show, and he's mentioned that his work has been like in a television show. We had Donna Coro, who's an mm-hmm. artist in Austin. Her work has been on a BET show. Like I'm wondering because we hear so much about this kind of like black creative renaissance and you hear about it through these like visual artists, does that exposure help you in any sort of way? Like, I don't know, like has your work been out there in that way where you feel like you've gotten exposure because it's been amplified through say a musical artist or something like that? Not necessarily. Like, I guess this is a little hard to explain. And this, this is the the whole point of the studio, which is funny is that uh, because I think the hummingbird is such a, kind of secretive animal and, and it's very hidden because it's so small and it moves really fast. I've settled into I, into the idea that my work doesn't necessarily exist in a public space as much as it could. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. I think when the time comes, some more visibility might help. But in the meantime, like I still get to work with the people I love working with and whether I'm publicly associated with them or not is not really what I'm focusing on. It's just how do we make the best possible thing for this person or if it's for me how do i make the best possible thing for myself and and share it i mean that doesn't mean that i haven't had moments where my work was kind of recognized and especially recognized for the culture there was an article in the new york times magazine i think this was last year i'm not too sure but by isabel wilkerson and she just wrote a book called cast mm-hmm. that explores the idea of of racism but not through a racist ideology it's through a caste system which is a whole a whole nother way of looking at it. And uh, I did these two collage pieces for the article in, in the Times, and it was heavily centered around black imagery and, and police brutality. And that was the first time that I actually incorporated imagery into my work. And it was a very enlightening moment because I did the collages by hand. I was cutting out images of like MLK hanging out with like Mahatma Gandhi. I was cutting out images of African-American men on the floor with police pointing guns at their heads. And it was the first time that I started to have my work speak in a way that was relevant to what was actually happening. And that was really eye-opening for me. And that kind of led me down a whole new trajectory with my art. But in those instances, like I really enjoy when I can kind of speak to what's happening in the now and speak to the culture. I've just always been really curious about that because I want to make sure, you know, I mean, I'm saying this like I'm the singular person that can make this happen, but I (laughs) want to see that like black artists, visual artists, graphic artists that work, you know, particularly with their work being featured in entertainment get, you know, like Mm -hmm. just as much shine as like the show that the art is featured on or the actor that might be in front of the art in the, in the piece. I don't know, like something like that. It's making me think of, are you familiar with Brent Rollins? Does that name sound familiar? No. Who's Brent Rollins? Oh my God. (laughs) So (laughs) Brent Rollins, so he was our episode 400, but Brent Rollins is like, I forget the the moniker that I saw when I was researching it, but it was like your favorite hip hop artist, favorite designer or something like that. Like (laughs) he designed the logo for Boys in the Hood when he was, I think like 19. He designed the logo for Poetic Justice when he was like 20. Like he was rolling in that crew with like, Ice Cube and John Singleton back in the day. He mm-hmm. did a bunch of work in the 90s and 2000s 
Ego Tripping magazine. No, Ego Trip, mm-hmm. not Ego Tripping. Ego Trip. God, I can't remember the name of the magazine. It's escaping me, but it's episode 400 that people are listening. Like, go back and listen to it. But oh, like, yeah, hell yeah. But sure. like, his, the way that he sort of, oh, there were these shows on VH1. One was called Racerama. One mm-hmm. was called like, I think it was like a white art, like a white rapper showcase or something or a reality <laughs> show or something like that. He did yeah. all these like, he had his hand in all these kind of really interesting things around hip hop culture, but like it was through his design eye. And so mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that you see in like Vibe magazine and stuff for like the 90s and 2000s was heavily influenced by him and his oh, wow. work. And he is such a like cool ass, like behind the scenes kind of dude. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, him and I were talking. He was like, yeah, man, you know, I did this and did this and like I exhibited here and that. And I'm like, I was like, you understand. I was like, I grew up like watching on your work, yeah. watching yeah. your stuff, looking yeah. at your stuff in Vibe magazine, being like, I want to design like that, you know, yep. and was just being like so humble about it. And it's like, I knew who he was because I ended up kind of doing the research on it. But like, I don't think mm-hmm. the average hip hop fan knows who Brent Rollins is. And that's not to say that diminishes Brent's work in any sort of way, but like, mm-hmm. why is he not as recognized as, you know, artists from that time? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple, a couple levels to it. I think on a larger scale, typically designers are in the background because the work is what speaks to the public, right? So if I'm designing a logo for a company, my face isn't going to be the face of the company, but the logo will, right? So yeah, there's never really been a need for the designer to be in the public eye as much as maybe the person who runs the company or say if you're working for an artist, the artist is the one who is getting all the focus. So the designer kind of falls to the background. I think we're starting to see a shift in that, especially in black culture with people like Virgil Abloh who became almost like designers of the year for every year for a long mm-hmm. time at this point. Yeah. Uh, but he came he came from like Kanye's group and he started to create the idea that designer can be the public figure also and not just be the one that sits in the in the background. So I think that tide is starting to shift and and we're starting to see it, it also happens in music too. Back then producers were always just like behind the boards and you mm-hmm. never really knew who was producing the music. But now the producers are just as big as some of the artists. And so we're seeing that shift take place and I think that's really cool. I don't know if it'll it'll happen to me, but it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, that's, I don't mind being in the shadows. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. And I, I do hope to see that day where like like the designers and the visual artists kind of get that same level of of recognition or at least name recognition where folks know yeah. like they look at something, you're like, oh, that's a Chris Burnett. You know, like yeah. if they see a collage yeah. or something like that, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely developing a visual language and a style that feels really specific to me. Mm-hmm. And so there are certain recognizable aspects of my work. And uh, as I venture more into music, I'm definitely going to be presenting myself and my person, you know, out there. So maybe the moment where the tide turns and this all becomes more public is right around the corner. There you go. Yeah. So tell me what it was like growing up in L.A.? Growing up in L.A., yeah, I grew up in South Central, specifically Manchester and Vermont, for anyone who knows that area. It wasn't really the best neighborhood at the time. There was a lot of gang violence, a lot of drugs. Police relations with the community were not great. And growing up there definitely had an impact on me, although my parents were very, very careful in what they allowed me and my older brother to do. 
we weren't really allowed to to go outside after a certain time. I didn't really have many friends in the neighborhood because that was the way that I could get caught up in some of the wrong stuff. So a lot of my time was spent creating indoors, whether that was drawing or, or painting or my parents would put me in art classes at a pretty young age just to keep me occupied and doing something that I enjoyed versus running around my neighborhood getting into trouble like a lot of the kids who were there probably did. And it wasn't until I went to high school that I was taking the bus to high school, the public transport, and that was the first time I got a little taste of freedom. And I started skateboarding at the same time. And so I would take the bus to skate parks and start to explore a little bit. And that was when I really started to understand the neighborhood a little bit better. It wasn't as dangerous as it was when I was when I was a little, little kid. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it definitely influenced my practice and my behavior in terms of I like the area I grew up in because it's, to me, it feels real. It feels very like honest and where I live now is actually a completely different environment and at this point I'm not sure that I want to stay there as much because every time I go home to visit my folks it's like oh I I actually really like this neighborhood and maybe I was scared of it when I was a kid but now I'm an adult and I know how to move and yeah certain things become illuminated when you're in different stages of your life so Back then, it was a little intimidating, but now it's more enticing, especially they're building, they just built the big stadium in Inglewood. That's like 10 minutes from where I grew up. So mm-hmm. there are things that are happening in that area that wouldn't necessarily happen. Resources are coming back down there, which I think is great. So I might move down. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> LA is so big. I Yeah, man. I was, I was there actually for the first time last year. We did our, we were set to do a live tour throughout 2020 last year and we started off in LA and did our first live show out there and nice I was just I mean I live in Atlanta which is pretty spread out but like LA is gargantuan Mm -hmm. in terms of like (laughs) scale like I was like in the Koreatown Mm -hmm. like neighborhood initially and then like we did the live show we did that down in Leimert Park but like I didn't really get to see L.A. I saw like a couple of neighborhoods, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's always like the pockets that people go to, but there's a lot of hidden hidden treasures in this city. And it just, you know, it takes time. It takes time of living here or just having the time to explore. You got to have a car. You got to drive everywhere. But yeah, it's massive. It's massive, massive, (laughs) massive, massive. (laughs) So you grew up studying art. You were taking art classes and everything. And eventually Mm -hmm. you... uh, went to college, you went to Cal Arts. What was yeah. that experience like? Cal Arts for me was extremely transformative. At this point, I was I was coming out of high school. I took a graphic design course in high school, so that's kind of how I knew that's what I wanted to study in college. Okay. So I applied, I applied to a couple different art schools in California. I didn't really want to leave the state. And the minute I stepped on the Cal Arts campus for a tour is the minute that I knew that was the place I needed to be. I didn't really even do that much research, I'll be honest, but the feeling I got when I arrived there was, it felt like I definitely made the right decision. And the thing that I loved about that school was that there were so many disciplines in one roof. There was acting, there was costume design, there was character animation, there was graphic design, there was fine arts, there was music, there was set design, there there was all kinds of creative people who come from all over the world to study and you know perfect their craft. And so that period of time really opened my eyes to all the things that maybe I didn't get to experience growing up, 
especially because my parents were were really careful about what I was exposed to. Once I got to CalArts, it was like, oh, I'm an individual now. Like I can, <laughs> <laughs> I can kind of do what I want. <laughs> yeah, and I can explore and I can see what like what life really has to offer. You know, it was it was in a bubble of of CalArts, but still within that bubble, there were so many different pockets to explore. And that's where I met a lot of my a lot of the friends I have now are are people from that school. A lot of the people that I try to keep in. T- in touch with creatively or people from that school. Mm-hmm. And it was just a, a really transformative time. I think it really allowed me to to grow up. I've always been the youngest one in all in my friend circles. And when I funny stories, when I got to CalArts, I still maybe looked like a 13-year-old, 14-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> it was very strange. People would walk up to me and say, Do you go here? Like, are you lost? Like <laughs> I'm, just, I'm like, no, man, I'm headed to like the movie class right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was really interesting. It kind of was that time for me to to grow up and kind of grow into myself. And, you know, I wouldn't trade those four years for the world, even though I picked up some student debt from it. But, you know, we all have a little bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that where you met Bijan? That's where I met Bijan, yeah. So Bijan was my classmate all four years. And what happens at CalArts in the design program is that you share a studio in the graphic design program. You share a studio with your entire year level. So there were about 19 to maybe 21 of us in our first year, which was pretty large for an incoming class. And Bijan was in that class with me. We actually met the day we had a portfolio review and we didn't know each other. We were just both coming from our high schools and trying to show our work to get accepted. And he was literally standing in line right in front of me. And lo and behold, we both got accepted and ended up in the same class. Nice. And Bijan was and still is one of my best friends and he kind of became this creative rival, but in the best way possible, where <laughs> if he was doing something, I would see what he's doing and be like, oh, that's really good. Okay, now I got to do something that's really good. And then he would see what I was doing and it would level him up and then he would level me up. And we kind of ping ponged off each other like that for until we graduated. Nice. It's good to have that kind of like creative sort of tension in a way, I guess. Mm-hmm, for sure. I really thrive off of, I'm really competitive, so whether it's in sports or in like making a cool poster, <laughs> I still I feel that that edge or that desire to want to be the best and bring the best out of myself and others. So we really thrived on that with each other. Nice. And for folks that are, are listening who are like, who is Bijan? Bijan Berahimi, he uh, founded us. St- you, actually, you two co-founded Fisk together. Is that right? Mm hmm. Yeah. So it has we a, school, a, a studio called Fisk, like the like the HBCU, but not. The HBCU. Yeah, not not the college. Definitely not the college. (laughs) So this came about in our first year. It was actually a collaboration between a bunch of our classmates. We wanted to create a website where we could showcase student work and kind of just have a digital space for us to talk about design as students. And a lot of us contributed to the website. We had a thing called Things We've Stolen, which was posters that we stole from the walls of CalArts and we would feature them on the website. There's a large, (laughs) large poster culture at that school. We would interview other designers who were working professionally and ask them questions about the transition from student life to professional life. We would have zines where we ask students in in the program to submit artwork and then we would throw a party for the zine release. And it was a it was a myriad of things when we were in school. After we all graduated, we kind of settled into our own pockets and practices. And Bijan decided to resurrect Fisk in Portland. And that's when it became the studio. I wasn't a part of 
inauguration of the studio per se. Mm-hmm. But the initial idea was uh, a very collaborative thing, and it still is to this day. He runs it out of Portland and has a couple employees, and they're doing great. Nice. And speaking of Portland, after you graduated, you did eventually head to Portland because you had an opportunity with Nike, which we'll get to. But you had a, another opportunity that happened to you senior year where you got to work with a pretty well-known music group. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's actually a crazy story about how that happened. So my third year of college, we had a project that was to design a, a magazine of a subculture, any subculture of our choice. I decided at that point I wanted to focus on Odd Future because they had just started to gain a little traction. And I think they were doing most of their stuff independently. And and it was something that I really resonated with because of that DIY spirit and because they were from where I was from. And it was just cool to see kids like me doing cool stuff. And so I decided to make my magazine about Odd Future. I designed the whole thing, printed the whole thing, and I gave it to my brother who was friends with Travis, who used to go by Taco, just so they could see it and kind of be aware of me. Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know if Travis ever got the magazine. I have no idea where the magazine is to this day, <laughs> which I would love to see it because it's been so long. But I did that in hopes that that would be my connection point with them so they could know that I'm over here doing my thing. They're over there doing their thing. Nothing really came of that. So by the time fourth year came around, I was setting my sights on on other jobs or other opportunities and randomly on a trip to Joshua Tree with Bijan, I get an email in the car from a guy who's running an agency that's handling all of Odd Futures merchandising and branding and things like that. And he goes, hey, Chris, saw your work. Would you love to come work for Odd Future? And I was like, what? Like a year later? Like what? It was so random and I was not expecting it. But immediately I said yes. And so that was midway through the end of my time at CalArts and I started interning there. So I would have class. After class, I would get in my car and drive all the way back down to LA to work with them for a a couple of hours, come back to school, do my schoolwork. And that was kind of a a balance that I struck at the end of my fourth year until I graduated. And then I just started working for them full time. And that that was a crazy experience for me. It was one of those like dream moments where like, these are artists that I really respect and admire. They're mm-hmm. doing really cool things musically, visually, and just the the fact that I got to be a part of it for for that span in my life was was pretty amazing. That's a dope story. I mean, when you think of of Odd Future and and of course, you know, Tyler the Creator and Yeah. And who else is in the crew? Earl Sweatshirt and mm-hmm. and uh Jasper Dolphin. Jasper Haji Dolphin. Beats, Left yeah. Brain. Yeah. All the OGs. When you like think of their whole like persona, it's so hard to like pin down. Like mm-hmm. I feel like you could just say like, oh, like, you know, black skater or whatever, but like it's so much more than that. Like I think particularly yeah. Tyler, I remember Tyler had this show on uh on Vice a few years ago called Nuts and Bolts. Yeah. I love and that and he was doing like all these different like design things. Like he's like, Oh, I'm I'm designing apparel, I'm designing a shoe or something like that. I'm designing furniture. Like he was doing all this like interesting design stuff. This was going on, I think, right around the time there was also this reality show on YouTube that I've I've mentioned on the show before mm-hmm. called Lace Up, which is basically mm. like a sneaker design reality show contest thing. Oh, right. Because, uh, you know, there's a Pencil Academy in Portland. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely familiar. With yeah, people. so Dwayne Edwards, who uh, who Doctor Dwayne Edwards, by the, by the way, by now, but uh, he nice. runs that school, and he did this reality show on YouTube where he was bringing in designers to like design shoes and stuff. And I remember I would watch that, and I would watch nuts and bolts, and be like, "Why is nobody talking about these like yeah, black design right. shows?" You yeah. know? Yeah. But I mean, their style is so. Oh, it's hard for me to to kind of pinpoint. I think most people know Odd Future because of the the like donut logo. But mm-hmm. like, what sort of stuff were you doing? Like, how did okay, that so, like how did that creative process look like? Yeah, that that was a, <laughs> it was definitely wild for sure. I mean, by the time I started helping with a lot of the merchandise and the clothing, there was definitely a visual aesthetic that was already established, and that was primarily you know Tyler's ideas and and the group's ideas. When I hopped on board, there was definitely a, a lane to work within. There was definitely visuals that I could reference, things that I knew they liked, things that I knew they didn't like to stay away from. And so a lot of the times what would happen is I'd be in the office with, uh, there was me, there was another designer named Aaron Martinez, shout out to Aaron. There's another designer named Phil who handled mostly the golf wang stuff, which was separate from the Odd Future stuff at the time. And so they were kind of the two creative directors for me at least and they would kind of pinpoint where I should take things and what directions I should go in but a lot of the time the guys the group of artists and the and the music makers and the whole clique would just show up at the office and we would have these meetings where they would just pitch ideas to us of like I remember Jasper one time saying yo like I want a dolphin on the Empire State Building smoking a blunt and me (laughs) you know I just graduated with like a design degree and I was like how am I going to do this weird like photo manipulated illustration and pull this off and then put it on a t-shirt? Like this is wild. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> but I ended up doing it. It actually became one of my favorite pieces, even though it was one of the strangest things in the world. But yeah, they would just come in. We would kind of print everything out, have these like just big jam sessions of everyone's getting everyone's thoughts and ideas and opinions. If they liked what we did, they would rock with it. If not, they would exit immediately and say, do this differently or do a different thing over here and maybe change the color of this and tweak this a little bit. So it was a super, super collaborative process and and really wild to just like kind of hang out with them because this was really at the peak of their stardom as a as a group. Super mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Did you have like an odd future name? Like, did they give you a name or something? No, 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 no. See, <laughs> here's, and this, this is another thing that kind of um, contributes to me being in the shadows. I didn't really try to infiltrate into the group like that. I knew that okay. they were already, they were already so like tight knit and like close friends. And I've never really been the type to, to try to eat off of someone else's success. And mm. so I, I purposefully was like, it's cool. Like I enjoy working with you guys. I enjoy creating these things for you, but like, I'm just going to kind of take my place in, in the backseat and watch you guys do your thing. And it was, it was still fun for me just yeah. to do that. Yeah. I can't imagine how like some of those design sessions might've went just the ideas and like the crazy shit that they come up with. I imagine is, I mean, yeah. I think for any like really like strong visual designer, that's like a that's a, a dream to kind of have a client or to have someone that has that kind of creative capacity to just do whatever. Yeah, it was definitely really freeing to especially to come from CalArts, which was a, a similar environment in terms of the freedom of creativity that we had in school. And to have that as my first full time gig, it was I couldn't ask for anything better. It was great. So after working with them, you got an opportunity to work with Nike, which, you know, then eventually had you go to Portland. 
Right. Tell me, like, if you could sum up your time at Nike in one phrase, like, what would it be? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> one phrase. Working at Nike. Oh, put me on the spot. I would say high level hierarchy. <laughs> okay. I mean, I might have to explain that a little bit. When I when I say high level, I guess I mean the quality of work that was being produced and the scale of work. Mm-hmm. Um the amount of people that would see it, the amount of reach that it had. That's what I mean by high level. And when I say hierarchy, there's such a system in play at such a large corporate company like that that sometimes creativity and new ideas are are not necessarily accepted because yeah. it doesn't fall within the framework of what has been successful for them as a company. So I've always understood that before I started working there. So I wasn't going in thinking that it would be like another odd future. I went in knowing that, okay, this is going to be a, a big place where there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things that I can't control. There's a lot of things that I don't have any impact over. And so it was a humbling experience to be able to contribute my ideas to such a large and fast moving company. But then it also for me told me that that environment wasn't necessarily the one that I wanted to be in for a long time in terms of working in the, in the design world. But it was definitely a great like learning experience to get my feet wet, like being a professional it was cool. Yeah, we've had a few designers on the show before that have uh, that have worked at Nike and they all I don't know if they all liked it. Like, yeah, yeah, like exactly. in, a, in a way it's, it's good because it's like, oh, this is Nike. And like you said, there is that sort of high level reach, but, mm-hmm. uh, each person we've had on has like said, it's not a great place to work. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certain aspects of it that are really difficult to stomach if you're not, if you're not capable of, of grinding it out. I yeah. think one of the, one of the bigger things that I had to do when I was there was just work a lot. When we needed to get a project done, we were up very late working on it on campus until it was done. And that it really instilled like a good work ethic in me. But as far as being a sane human being, it did not contribute to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at all. So, yeah, that that was a really difficult part of it, especially coming in as like a young designer who had new ideas. And maybe I, I wanted to bring like new innovations to the way they were thinking about design. It's not that they didn't want to listen. It's that they already understood what worked for them. And so for for a group of young designers to come in and just shake everything up and try all these new things, it's not really something they were looking for at yeah. at the time. You know, now, now that Virgil kind of cracked open the door with his uh, initial, like, the 10 collaboration, the shoes, mm-hmm. where he was messing with the swoosh and, and changing it and putting it in different locations where they would never do that. It's really opened the door for them to to expand their create creativity to a whole new level, which we've kind of been seeing lately. But when I was there, it was still very much like you kind of play by the book because this is the recipe that has worked for them. Yeah. Like if they know that it's going to work all these different times, they're not really looking for any variations on that. They just need you to kind right. of do the same thing. Right. And at the end of the day, if we're being honest, you know, they're they're a company, they're a business and yeah. they, they need to make money. And so if they're experimenting too much and it, and it messes with their uh, with their stock price or, you know, some of the shareholders get upset, it's going to affect it's going to trickle down. And that's kind of what I mean by hierarchy is that if there's so many layers to it that it's really impossible as one designer to go in there and, and really like have your voice heard. But, you mm-hmm. know, to each their own. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, you know, like you say, be, because of 
the sort of crucible that that design environment is, like you say, it's strengthening your work ethic. And I'm sure mm-hmm. probably has, has helped you out in some way now as a designer, just having that experience working there. Oh, yeah, for sure. So there were kind of two stints that I did at Nike. The first one was in brand design for sportswear. And that was my first experience there. And and honestly, all of my coworkers were amazing people. I had a great time working with them. And it was, you know, like I said, grinding out a lot, just working hard on campaigns. We were kind of doing the overarching branding system that would then be sent out to all the different categories around the world. And they would apply what we designed to whatever product was being released. So that was really cool to see that. And then the second stint was for the Olympics for Rio 16. Mm. And that was, wow. I thought If I thought the first stint was crazy, the second one was like, I don't even know how I lasted. But it definitely helped put a work ethic into my brain. So if I need to work on something, I will get it done. There's, there's no excuses. <laughs> they always said it at Nike, there's no finish line. That's one of the taglines. And the reason they say that is that work just keeps on going and innovation keeps on happening and you know things don't really stop even though we're we're running we're we're putting our all in things just keep moving and keep going and keep evolving and it's a it's a tough environment to be in if you're not used to that type of of pace of work but mm-hmm. if you're down for it it can really instill a good work ethic in you that's how it was when i worked at AT&T like mm. it was uh AT&T was one of these places you walk in and they have this like huge banner over the big like marble reception desk that says like (laughs) shaping human capital or something. (laughs) And like you'd go and there would be this never ending fire hose of work. Like, yeah, I think when we'd go in, we were always six months behind on something and the salespeople (laughs) just kept selling and the work just kept coming in. So like you never caught up. We had, I think roughly about 30, 36 designers that were working there. We were on te- in teams of uh, of 12. Mm-hmm. And um, they had this like floor to ceiling LED board. So mm-hmm. everything that you designed had a point value to it. No and like way. as a design <laughs> as a designer, <laughs> you had to hit like I think when I started, you had to hit 36 points at the end of the week. And then eventually they upped it to 40. But like everything oh. you designed had a point value. So if you design a banner that's like 0.9 points if you design a three-page website that's five points if you design a 10-page wow. website that's nine points so you could you could hit your total pretty easily if you just design like four websites in a week or something like that yeah and the and the design was i mean this was 2006 so we were literally like you would pull the order from the system. They had this system called Ice Blue. I don't work there anymore. So even if all this stuff is proprietary, I don't care. But they had, they had this thing called Ice Blue and you'd pull your wreck. And so you had to like go to a file cabinet, fish out the envelope. This is with paper, fish out the envelope that had all the assets in it. Like it was usually no like printed way. out word files, like scraps that the, the salespeople got from the, the company of like, their logo drawn on a napkin or something. And you had to go to the scanner. I'm dating myself. You had to go to the scanner and there was one computer with the scanner for 36 designers. Oh my God. So you had to go to the scanner, scan your stuff in, mail it to yourself. Cause we didn't have Dropbox cause it didn't exist then yeah. mail it to yourself. You get back to your station and then you have to like trace it out. We were using Dreamweaver because it's 2006. Oh my. Um, <laughs> and you basically had to like build the website, retype all the information and everything. 
And like eventually you got faster because like it's one thing to do the actual coding and the design work in Photoshop and Illustrator or whatever, but like then you've got all this other like operational stuff you have to do, mm-hmm. like pull the rack and scan it and do this and return the folder <laughs> and walk it over to QA, like physically walk it over to QA and all this stuff. Yeah. And eventually you get better just in terms of like speed. So like I could knock out four or five websites in a week once I got it. Like if I got the packet in the morning, I could finish it by lunch. And then I could pick Whoa. up one at lunch and then finish it by the time it was I was ready to go home. Because eventually I built like a little and again, this was 2006. So this was right around the time when <laughs> table-based layout was being phased out and CSS mm-hmm. layouts were being phased in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we we like we fired some people because they couldn't get it. They did not know <laughs> they did not know how to convert the tables to CSS or they weren't to getting CSS, it. We fired yeah. people. God, this was a long long time ago. But <laughs> eventually I like made a little CSS like I don't know, like a a, a work template or something that I could easily mm-hmm. just plop in and like change a yep. few values so I could get quicker with it. And like I still use that to this day, like principles nice. from that. But you know, it's sort of one of yeah. those things where like if I wasn't in that type of design environment, would I have been even like would I even know to do something like that? You know what exactly, I mean? Exactly. Exactly. So do you think that the having the point system actually helped people stay on track in terms of what they needed to get done? Because I, I mean, that's almost like public accountability for the work that you have to do. I mean, yes and no. Like for some people, it really freaked them out because the yeah. thing was, <laughs> if you didn't hit your number, because you could see how everyone on the team was doing at oh, any man. given point in time. <laughs> So you could see like what your number was and who was above you and who was below you. And so it was, it was one thing for you to know the number, but now everyone else knows your number. Mm -hmm. So you'll be sitting at lunch and someone will come and be like, you got to get the numbers up. Like you can't (laughs) even get and keep, and keep in mind, we only could take a 15 minute lunch. So you have to like wolf down your sandwich or whatever that you brought from home. Yeah. And like get all these like and it would just be random people, like random supervisors that don't even work on your team will just come by you. Points looking a little low this week. Like <laughs> I don't need that kind of pressure. I'm trying to get I'm trying to get the work done, you know? So I don't know if it helped. I mean, certainly it's one of those things where like you either cut it or you don't, but you definitely knew at any given point in time like where you stood. And eventually it got to the point where they up the amount of points you had to get and then they lowered the point value of the items. So you had to crank out more work oh, to get to gosh. a higher target. And yeah, it was a mess. That's I left there well. and I was like, I left there and said, I have to do my own thing. Like yeah. I didn't want to work for another place <laughs> after that. And I think similarly, when you left Nike, you started freelancing too. Is that right? Yeah. So between those two stints that I just mentioned after the first one was when I decided to leave after I just had a nine month contract, so I never actually took full time at Nike. I was what what was called ETW. It's like a temporary worker. Okay. And my contract was up after nine months. I decided that I wanted to try my hand at freelancing, which is something I had never done before. And the funny thing is, even coming off of like the new work ethic that I had just developed, all the skills and connections that I had made, freelancing did not really work for me. And I think it was because I I lacked motivation to do so Mm. just because i was coming off of nine months of very very like grueling work having this time to kind of set hours for myself it made me not really want to do that much work and almost like take a vacation so i in that period of time i was focusing a lot on my music and a lot on my artwork 
but I wasn't really successful at the freelance thing. So by the time the Rio Olympics had come around, the guy who wanted me to work with him on his team, Ibrahim Hassan, who shout out to Ibrahim, he was he kind of became my mentor in that moment. He wanted me to come back and work on the Olympics. And so that's when I went back. And that was even more grueling than the first time. But <laughs> I'd learned so much more by working with him and working with our team that it was very much worth it for me to do it. But after that, I knew I, that that was it, that I couldn't keep doing it. Yeah. And that's when I went freelance. And the second time around it, it clicked for me. I'm not necessarily sure what I changed. I think I was just more hungry to make it work because I didn't, it didn't work the first time. Right. I mean, I think, you know, with freelance and like for me, when I first started out, like I left in like late 2008, I just quit Mm -hmm. my job. I was like, I can't do this anymore and started my studio. And I'd say maybe those first goodness, those first three or four months were rough. Cause even though I was like, I got all the skills, I know people X, Y, Z, like finding the work ended up being difficult. It wasn't so much that I couldn't do it. It was just finding like the right clients. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I did end up working for a client. It was a political client. And then that working on that campaign kind of kickstarted my studio and kept me going. But like, if I wouldn't have gotten into that, I don't know if I would have like continued freelancing. Like I had to, I don't want to say I had to link up with someone, but once you got the right client and it clicked, then you're Mm -hmm. like, okay, I can keep, you know, sort of doing this. Like it, it sort of makes sense. You had worked with an agency called Ceremony of Roses when you were freelancing, right? Right. So after I left Nike the second time, I think there was a there was a stint in between where I went overseas just to travel around for a little bit. And that was maybe three months in, in Southeast Asia, which was really fun. By the time I came back, I did another short contract at, at Jordan, which was still on Nike campus. So in that world, but just for the Jordan brand instead. And then after that, it was like, all right, I think I'm going to move home to L.A. And at the time, that agency ceremony of roses had reached out to me and was like, we have a position open at our agency down in L.A. And it was literally perfect timing because I was already moving back home. And that's when I decided that I I was going to take that job down in L.A. when I got back. They were heavily focused on music, so completely different world than sports and branding. Mm. Uh, They had a lot of clients in the music industry and their main bread and butter was was merchandising and kind of creating the brand that surrounded the artists, whether that's from an, tour announcements and flyers and posters to actual merchandising to websites to things for them to post on social media. So in a similar way to the agency that I worked with for Odd Future, who was mm-hmm. kind of just handling a lot of the creativity, that's what Ceremony of Roses was, but in a updated and more efficient way, I'd like to say. And that was, uh, I stayed there for about two years. My timelines are always a little foggy, but I stayed there for around two years in LA, just doing a lot of work with with artists in the music industry. Like Janelle Monae had released her album, Dirty Computer. And that was one of the bigger projects that I got to work on. And, And her and her team were fantastic just because they really trusted me and they gave me a lot of creative freedom to to create pieces that worked with her album and with the whole concept of what she was doing and that was one of the highlights of of that job for me wonderland studios has a great team oh yeah yeah Yeah. fantastic people to work with so i made a lot of good connections from that from working with that agency and uh yeah we still work together today so oh cool i know george 2.0 we went to Morehouse oh, nice. together. Yeah, 2.0. Yeah, yeah me. <laughs> we went to Morehouse together. And I, I think I first 
heard about Janelle. This was back before she was doing the whole like Android thing. She had this yep. uh, the CD called The Audition, I think. And mm-hmm. I remember like buying it off the strip one day in like the late 2000s. No, not late 2000s, way earlier than that. This was like early 2000s. I'm I'm not that young, but <laughs> I remember getting her her CD and being like, "Oh, this is really good." And yeah. I they would you know, like of course they have an Atlanta connection because she's, you know, lived and worked here before and stuff. So, but mm-hmm. their whole crew, their whole studio is doing like great work. Yeah. I've always admired them because they they operate in a way that's different to a lot of artists and and I think just their tight-knit community of people that they work with it's mm-hmm. it was a real like family vibe when I would connect with their team and and we would talk and discuss work and it just felt really good to be around them uh, great people who are some of the people that have really kind of like helped you out as mentors throughout the years I wouldn't say that I've had specific mentors where their role was to mentor me through the stage of life that I was in but I think a lot of the times the supervisors that I had at the companies I worked with kind of took on that role in maybe a, a subconscious way. The first being a guy named Michael Spo, Spoljeric, who was the, I think it's brand director, creative director. There's so many titles at Nike that I forget what he was doing, but he was the head of, of sportswear brand design when I was there. And so when, when I got hired to work with them, he kind of was the introduction into that world of professional kind of corporate design. And so he really, in terms of design and creativity, he really helped me to understand like good typography, good layouts, how to design a book properly, what images to choose for a campaign, stuff like that. And the next stint when I was working on the Rio Olympics, I already mentioned Ibrahim. He was he really became kind of that mentor figure for me. And he already saw that I had potential, but he fine tuned it. And that's what I really appreciated about him was that he really got down to the nitty gritty and the specifics of things, the details of things, because every little detail counts if you're trying to make something that is that is impactful. If you leave one little thing out, then it might ruin the whole trajectory of the story. So he was really a figure like that for me. When I came to Ceremony of Roses, the two people who really stuck out to me was was Brad Scoffern, who's the, the owner of the company. He's the one who brought me on board. He I met him when I was working at Odd Future and he always remembered me. So by the time he started his own agency, he immediately reached out to me and wanted to work with me. And then uh, another guy at that company named Jared, Jared Heinke, who kind of became my uh, pseudo mentor at that time when I was working there too. So I haven't really had like specific people outside of uh, work environments that have done that for me, but it's always been like supervisors or, or bosses or those who are in higher positions than me who can kind of show me the ropes and keep me on track. Now, you call yourself a creative superhero. What does that mean to you? It means that I have a lot of superpowers. It's always been <laughs> <laughs> it's always been really difficult for me specifically to classify what I am or who I am in terms of my creativity because I can say one day that I'm an artist and then another day I can say I'm a musician. One day I can say I'm a designer and I can wear all these hats and I, and I try to wear them really well. And I was always thinking of like, what's just like a cool umbrella term that I could use that doesn't take itself too seriously, but does speak to the idea that I can do all of these different things. And I came up with that when I was designing the the website for Calibri and it kind of just stuck. So that's the moniker that I like to use. If It'll be on like business cards or like any little bios. But yeah, that's what that means. Nice. 
Now, I've read, you know, where you talked about your ultimate dream project, which was back when you were working with Odd Future. It was this collaboration mm-hmm. with uh, with their brand, with Golf Wang and Hello mm-hmm. Kitty. And that was what? That was years and years ago. Is that still like your ultimate dream project? Or do you have another dream project you want to do one day? I mean, I definitely have. I think I have a bunch of dream projects. That one specifically came about my brother, my older brother, who's also a, a designer, artist, musician, just like me. His name is Jordan. He was really into a bathing ape. And this was before I was really knowledgeable about these brands at this time. And he had this one shirt which featured a character named Baby Milo, which was a very cute drawing of a little monkey. And it was really simple and it had really thick lines. And I was just obsessed with that illustration style for the longest time. And I remember when I was working for Odd Future, Tyler had created a character called Shark Cat. And he was really into cats and we used him a lot, a lot of the uh, merchandise. And I decided that I wanted to create a Shark Cat version of almost a baby Milo-like character. So I took this cat head that Tyler had come up with and I placed it onto a very simplified body with like a with the bold strokes and just really kind of a cute little character. And I wanted to use it for something, but I didn't really know what we would use it for. And then my boss at the time told me that Sanrio, which is the company that owns Hello Kitty, they were looking to do a collaboration with Odd Future. And that was the moment that I was like, okay, Hello Kitty is definitely in the same style of Baby Milo. And this is the moment where I can combine those two worlds. So I can take this little shark cat character and I can take the Hello Kitty character and I can put them in one. And I created, I must have created an entire like capsule collection for them. And then I don't really know what happened. I was told that the executives at Sanrio saw some of Odd Future's videos and were like, uh, maybe not. It's not really <laughs> in, <laughs> it's not really in line with our brand aesthetic. So that it never went through. But that was definitely just a dream project because I really was into the aesthetic of of Hello Kitty and and Baby Milo and wished that I could have combined those two worlds, but that never really came to fruition. But fast forward to now, my my biggest dream project is is more self-focused i want to have a gallery show with i'm I'm working on a a new body of work right now some of the biggest canvases i've ever worked on and i want to have a gallery show where all of that new work is there i want to create a couple sculptures to go in there i also want to perform my music at the gallery show so then it can kind of be a full representation of my artistic abilities that's really what i've been spending a lot of my time on in the past couple of months so that's where my brain goes when you ask, what would a dream a dream project be? If I could work with a client, it might be Tame Impala. It's my favorite. He's my favorite band. Okay. He's Kevin Parker, the guy who, who writes and records all the music, is, is the reason that I started making music. And that happened uh, at the end of CalArts, but we can get into that a little later. So if, if I could like work on some album packaging for him or do some tour visuals or just anything. Even if I could just meet him and have a conversation, I'd be <laughs> I'd be happy. But yeah, he's a big influence on me. And then I, was, I also love the brand Fucking Awesome. It's a, a skate brand Okay. here, here out of uh, Hollywood. They have a store here. And Jason Dill is kind of the, the creative genius behind that brand. And the reason I love it is because his artwork as, a, as an artist, as an individual artist, is the aesthetic of the brand. And so 
I don't know if it's still like this, but at, at a certain point, he was designing all the graphics. He was making all the board, all the skateboards that people would ride. And that's always just been a huge, a huge dream of mine is to either work with him or kind of create a brand that, you know, follows in that in his footsteps. Because I love skateboarding, too. I've been skateboarding for like 15 years at this point. So combining those worlds would be amazing to me. I could really see that gallery show. I could even see like a gallery show that combines all of this. Like you've got that, you've got the music. I don't know. Maybe you have like a small half pipe in there doing some skateboard tricks or something. I could see all of this sort of taking place. (laughs) It's interesting now, even like looking at exhibitions and stuff like that, because we've had a few black artists on the show, like exhibitions now are so much more than just like a painting on a wall. Like they're really these immersive 360 creative experiences you know like yeah it's uh i mentioned donna coro before and i she uh did a show that had a punk band in it and so she's like doing her art and has her art on the walls but then also has a punk band performing wow so you're like it's like a whole environment that's being created with Mm -hmm. the exhibition so i could see especially in la i could see all of that really coming together yeah, I mean, that that would definitely be a dream of mine to have this kind of multi-hyphenate experience for people to to enjoy. And I mean, a big thing for me is the more that I look at art, the more that I want it to not exist in just a, you know, a white walled space. Mm-hmm. I understand that that allows the art to speak volumes when there's nothing else to look at except the piece that's on the wall. But I've also had this dream of of having a gallery that's outside and maybe an old abandoned warehouse and seeing how the the art that's on the wall in the warehouse communicates with the actual aesthetic of like a rusted out building you know i think mm. that could create an interesting tension too but a lot of these things i i feel like i'll pursue once i establish my footing in the art world and and then i can maybe expand on some of these ideas mm. yeah and now are you still kind of pursuing your music so music for me has uh music for me has been really interesting in terms of my dedication to it i think there are moments where and this honestly this happens with a lot of the facets of my creativity there are moments where i'm really into making music and i'll write a new song every day and then there are moments where i just want to collage and i you know i don't even pick up the guitar or play the piano at all and right now i'm in a down on the music and i'm really focused on the artwork so it tends to fluctuate and I kind of like that because if I was too obsessed over one thing all the time, then I think all my other things would suffer. And I'm not really, I just can't let anything go. So (laughs) I can't, I can't ever stop collaging. I can't ever stop making music, but they ebb and flow in ways that support each other, whether I know it or not. And that's, that's how I feel about it. So I am planning to release a project next year, but there's not much in my mind that's happening with it yet, but I know that it's going to be released early next year. I'm sitting on a lot of music that no one's heard, so there's okay. definitely an, enough to to create a project and, and give it to the world. All in due time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like you're living your life's purpose, or do you think you're kind of still figuring it out? Wow. It's funny that you asked that, because I would say that I learned what that was this year specifically and it's been a long journey to get to this point i've always known that i wanted to do art i've always known that i wanted to be creative i've always known that i wanted to do music but 
for some reason, recently within the past couple months, the specific focus has been on I'm an artist and kind of telling myself that and believing it and moving towards it. And as I move towards it, the more it feels natural to me, which also tells me that, hey, this is probably what you're supposed to be doing. Because for a long time, I was in the design world and I was a graphic designer and I would call myself that. And I think the artist part of me was really sad that I wasn't allowing myself to embrace that. I think at heart, I'm an artist. I can do graphic design. But I think at heart, my purpose is to create art and share it with the world. So yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm getting there. It's baby steps for me in terms of establishing who I am as an artist and sharing that with the world and being a bit more open with what I'm doing creatively because I tend to sequester myself a little bit, but that's all starting to change. So I'm pretty happy about it. Where do you see yourself in the next like five years? Like, What do you want the next chapter of your career to look like? Next five years. Definitely doing more art shows. I think the ultimate goal for me is to have a bunch of solo shows and, and really focus in on creating work that challenges the way we think about life, that challenges the way that we interact with each other. Yeah, I, I see myself really settling into the art world and becoming the artist that, I've, that I know I can be. It's been so long because when I graduated with a degree in graphic design, you know, that, to me that felt like, oh, this is who I am now and this is what I have to do. And after working so long and, and, you know, reaching a certain amount of success that I am satisfied with, I realized that there was just something missing. And so this year really marks that transition that I kind of mentioned earlier into me fully embracing me as an artist and maybe moving away from a lot of the client work and kind of focusing in on the work that I want to be doing for myself. So in five years, I'll be 35. So hopefully by then I'll have a couple solo shows under my belt. I'm definitely getting better at playing guitar. That's one of the things I'm focusing on, too. And I want to put a band together so that I can play shows in Los Angeles, you know, eventually tour around the world if that's a reality that presents itself. But yeah, really focusing in on the artist aspects of of me and myself. That's where I see, see myself in five years. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and everything you're doing online? So you can go to calibristudios.com to pretty much see everything that I'm doing. I am not on social media and I don't really like Instagram. This is a whole, we could have a whole nother conversation <laughs> of, <laughs> about, about social media. As much as I understand that it's something that allows you to connect with people that might, may have never seen your work before, it's something about it just doesn't feel right with me and especially given the past couple years that we've all experienced in America we're starting to realize and understand the effects that these platforms can have on our mental health and our well-being as individuals and and our relationships with other people and I've decided to remove myself from it so I can have a different type of perspective and mm-hmm. I think it's served me pretty well so I, I only have a website that's why I'm saying that is com. That's where all my music is, photography, artwork, design work, everything. That's me. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, Chris Burnett, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. One, you know, for just, you know, telling your story and, 
and really kind of given some insight into the work that you've done. But I think also it's, it's important when we like hear your story and hear you talk about the passion behind your work to know that like creativity is something that we all in some way can kind of tap into, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things where like as a kid, you know, we take, you know, we have finger painting and all this stuff. But then as you get older, doing things in art design tend to be looked at as more of a hobby and less of a, a profession, you know, really seems like you were able to really lean into a lot of creative work, work with a lot of really interesting and creative companies and people. And like, I'm excited to see what you're going to do in the next five years, because I think it's definitely going to be something worth talking about. So Thank you thank so much you. for uh, for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Big, big thanks to Chris Burnett. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Chris and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Please talk to us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. Don't be a stranger. You can hit us up. We're on Twitter or we're on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone you know know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Revision Path.